lecture number six, which I have titled, Let's Start at the Beginning. Let's start at the beginning of our study of this kingdom. That would be from Adam to Abraham. Start at the beginning. In the words of Goldsboro, Goldsberg, the on page uh, 58, the creation story must never be regarded merely as a sort of biblical once upon a time. The fact that God is creator and that man is his creature establishes at the outset the basis for understanding the kingdom of God. In other words, that is, that would be the, there in that very beginning would be the whole kernel and all the elements of the kingdom of God. The fact that God is creator and that man is his creature establishes at the outset the basis for understanding the kingdom of God. When we speak of the sovereignty of God, we use a word which means his kingship. A kingship which is absolute and uncompromised. Now, I've often uh, marveled at how many subdivisions of Baptists we have running around our country right now, boldly and frequently engaging themselves with this word sovereignty. And yet they do not, you can very quickly find in conversation with them, that they do not, in fact, from that term, mean that his kingship is absolute and uncompromised. But it is. The creature is ruled and belongs as a creature within the sphere of God's perfect rule. In making all things by the power of his word, 2 Peter 3, 5, God shows the right he has as a creator to rule all things. The only perfect existence for the creature is that which is found within the framework of the rule of God. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 has been for a very long time uh, one of my favorite texts to preach from in the jail. You get 25 or 30 men in front of you and you ask them to turn to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. That is immediately a blessing because if you go more than a page away from there, most of them will not be able to find a text in the Bible. And uh, so when you ask them to turn to the very first verse, the very first page, it makes it really simple for everybody. And they like that. And I have many, many a time preached the gospel in the jail from that singular text. And I do so by making the point that you have in the very first verse 
introduced to you God with no explanation, no offer to defend, nothing. God. And then you're introduced to the fact that he created everything. And then it's an easy springboard to go from there to say if he made everything, he made it, then he owns it. It belongs to him. Therefore, he can do with it what he will. And that includes you. <laughs> so it's an easy progression from Genesis chapter 1. And that's the point that Goldsworthy is making here regarding the kingdom of God. He created. Therefore, he is sovereign, both absolutely and uncompromisingly. Therefore, man being the created is subject to his rule. Period. A little further down, Goldsworthy says, if we believe in God as creator, we may not divide the world into spiritual and secular. Uh, and again, in my delivering the gospel in uh, the jails, that is something that I moved to, the fact that if you believe that God is created. And of course, then you can deal with the whole fact of whether or not you believe that. Because you're really left with only two options. He is or he isn't. If he isn't creator, then the whole Bible is a complete farce. And if God lied to me, if he lied to me in the very first verse, then I ought to throw the book in the trash and never read another word of it. And if he didn't, now that's a game changer. <laughs> that's huge. And one of the things that is the fruit of believing that is that you cannot divide the world into spiritual and secular. Now, of course, he's not talking about, you know, in the outward active civil life and such like that. He's just saying you cannot, in your mind, you can't say, oh, well, this is spiritual, so this has to do with God. But this over here, th this is the material world, this is physical this, this God has nothing to do with this. This is altogether man. Well, to believe that God is creator uh, prevents you from holding that view. It is, by the way, not really very personal, but somewhat on a personal note. It is in these areas that I feel that I am far more, quote, Reformed than most quote reformed Baptists. I'm probably more attuned to the Presbyterian theology on this matter than most are because I believe strongly in what the Presbyterians love to talk about the Dominion Mandate. The Dominion Mandate exists because God is creator and therefore has authority to administer man. And to show that to you, just out of a, for your, purely for your interest, 
I have a copy here of the Westminster Confession of Faith with its expanded notes uh, and uh, done by the Free Presbyterian Church Publications. Alexander McPherson wrote the forward to it. And uh, in the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7 of the Confession, which is titled, Of God's Covenant with Man. He says, they say, the Westminster divines wrote these words. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do obey, do owe, do owe obedience unto him as their creator, Yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. Okay, by way of covenant. But notice the wording in the Westminster. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to him. Why do they owe obedience to him? Purely by virtue of the fact he created them. It's a given. It's it's this this they are in Adam was brought in to the kingdom of God, <laughs> made a creature and subject in the kingdom of God purely by virtue of the fact that God created him. Later on uh, in the Westminster, under chapter 23 of the civil magistrate, the Westminster says, God, the supreme Lord and King of all the world, hath ordained civil magistrates to be, comma, under him, comma. I don't press that too far. I don't go as far as my fully reformed brethren on that matter. But we can certainly take, take it in its generality. God, supreme Lord and King of all the world, hath ordained civil magistrates to be under him over the people for his own glory and the public good, and to this end hath armed them with the power of the sword for the defense and encouragement of them that are good and for the punishment of evildoers. So, here the Westminster is showing the commitment that man is under by virtue of being his creature, his creative sovereignty. If he establishes civil government, then that civil government is to operate under his laws to the promotion of good and the prevention of evil. 
Now, the Westminster divines tied that not to some genius of civil order, but tied that to the relationship of God as creator and man as his creation. Right? The larger catechism, the little hope children are learning. What is the first question of the catechism? What is the chief and highest end of man? The answer. Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully enjoy him forever. Why? Because he is the fruit of God's creative hand. It goes back to the creation. Question number 95 in the larger catechism. Of what use is the moral law to all men? Answer. The moral law is of use to all men. Not just believers. All men. To inform them of the holy nature and will of God. And of their duty. Binding them to walk accordingly, to convince them of their disability to keep it and the sinful pollution of their nature, heart, and lives. So the moral law, according to the Westminster, is binding on all men. I remember, I <laughs> know it will expose my grotesque ignorance in those days. But I remember as a young aspiring student of theology, the first time it hit me, the thought ever came across my mind that unbelievers are bound by God's moral law just as much as believers. I tended to think and tended to have been taught that, well, they're sinners, so yeah, they're not accountable. They're not responsible. No, they absolutely are. By virtue of being his creation, they are in his government. They are under his government and subject to his laws. <laughs> I remember the first time I encountered that, we were in Letter Kenny in Ireland. And uh, the pastor there, who was an American, but he had been there for a lot of years, was going to have a wedding on Saturday of two unbelievers. People who had nothing to do with the church, no part in it whatsoever. And I remember being appalled at the notion that he would dare to stand and marry these two people together professed unbelievers. And when I confronted him with it later, I remember his response. He said, Brother, do you not believe that they are under obligation of the moral law of God? Well, I had never thought about it before. He said, Has God not ordained that men and women should be Married? Or should they just cohabit? Well, no, they should be married. Then why should these sinners not be married? 
I was left speechless. I'd never contemplated before the question at all, frankly, the broader, broader question about unbelievers being under the moral law of God. I just never considered it. Question number 39 in the shorter catechism says, what is the duty which God requireth of men? Here's the answer. The duty which God requireth of men is obedience to his revealed will. <laughs> do you believe that? <laughs> well, if you do, there are some people who will tell you you're not a Baptist. <laughs> so be it. <clears throat> so the dominion mandate is the fruit of this creation, creature, sorry, creator, creator, creation relationship. Goldsworthy says, but we also need to be reminded of the relationship of God's word to the reasoning of man, the creature, about what is true. One does not take a pocket flashlight and shine it on the sun to see if the sun is real. This would be more Luke's area of expertise. He's quite into taking up this type topic where reason falls in the spectrum of God's will and work among men. Goldsworthy says the truth of God's word, the truth of God's word, cannot be subject to the puny light of man's self-centered reason. God's word created what is and must interpret what is. All he's saying is that this cre creator-creature relationship cannot be examined through the lens of reason only. It must be examined through the word of God because it is the word of God that did the creating. And he says, he uses this wonderful little analogy, you can't, you can't shine a flashlight at the sun to see whether or not it's, the sun is burning. <laughs> that would be foolish. Of course, just above that, there's a wonderful little illustration by Spurgeon. He said, defend the Bible, I'd as soon defend the lion. Uh, so reason is not our basis for understanding these things. It is, of course, uh, the word of God. So he moves in to the discussion about, as I said, let's start at the beginning, that's of the study. The kingdom in the garden. All right. Goldsworthy on page 60 says, as creation speaks to us of the king, so Eden speaks to us of the kingdom. In the previous chapter, we saw that the kingdom of God is holy biblical idea, and the concept of the kingdom dominates the whole biblical story. The point where this pattern is established is the Garden of Eden. I said that earlier. 
I said, in the Garden of Eden is the kernel, it's the whole thing in one, in the very origin of the kingdom of God. There in the Garden of Eden, we see the, uh, we see the first, number one, remember he said the elements of the kingdom of God was the people of God, the place for those people, and the rule of God over them. Here it is, right here in the Garden of Eden. We see the people of God, Adam and Eve, the Garden of Paradise, that's the place which God prepared for them to be in this environment. And thirdly, the rule of God expressed by his word. So there they are. There's all three elements of the kingdom of God right there, right there in the Garden of Eden. And then he says, God as the sovereign king sets the limits of freedom. Genesis 2, 16, 17, he says, you shall eat of everything in the garden, but you shall not eat of these, this tree. Why would he, how can he do that? Because he's the king and this is his kingdom. And so he passes the law for the kingdom. Because this is the kingdom, the king may not be challenged by his subjects. The perfect relationship between the creator and creature, between ruler and rule, cannot exist if the creature seeks to usurp the role of the creator by rejecting this rule. And thus the mandate, Genesis 2, 9, 17, in the day ye thereof, eat of it, you shall surely die. The description of the Garden of Eden does not tell us everything about the kingdom of God, but it does provide the essential framework for understanding the nature of the king. There's the people of God, there's the place that God wants them, and there's the rule of God over them. And then we come to the fall, chapter, I mean, uh, page 61, the fall. He says, as with the creation, so it is easy to underestimate the significance and effects of the fall. If the creatorship of God is given its full weight, then the fall was the outcome of man's unilateral declaration of independence. Boy, that is a profound statement and a pregnant with meaning. The fall could be described as nothing less than the man's unilateral declaration of independence. Well, that's pretty strong word, but it certainly is true. So the fall occurred, and on chapter page 63, he says, man outside of the kingdom is not merely under the sentence of death, but is dead. The real meaning of death lies in the separation of man from the willing relationship of the kingdom. Autonomous man is God-denying and therefore life-denying as well. Fallen man is dead spiritually. Outside of Eden, there is no return. Man has made his choice to be a rebel and he's bound by his decision. 
nor is there any free choice for the posterity of Adam. Adam's fall from the garden, from the garden kingdom is a fall of the whole human race. Every man is born outside the garden. Every man is born an active rebel asserting autonomy and independence from the God of life. Human history and scripture will show that man's death Death state means that he infallibly chooses to hate God, for that is his outside Eden nature. It is no longer a question of freedom to choose right or wrong, for man is free now only to be what he is, a sinner who hates God. Man has become a slave to sin, a slavery that is death. Independence from the kingdom is what Adam, in fact, I would, I would take it a step farther and say he intended to establish his own kingdom apart from God and not recognizing that Dependent relationship that he had as the creature, he fell and that fall caused all his posterity. And I think it was just a curious phrase. I've never heard it before. I like that outside garden nature. <laughs> Every man born since, since has been born outside the garden. And that's the consequences of that choice he made. And so now the history unfolds all the way from Adam to Abraham. And you have on page 65 one of his infamous charts. He loves drawing these things and writing these things. And they are quite often helpful, at least a visual aid. Here you have, uh, it, of course, in very broad and general uh, categories, no, no detailed history here, but you have in a broad and general categories on page 65, a visual image of the, of the history of the kingdom from Adam down to Abraham which was the 10th generation from Noah. Okay? Uh, and that's how that history is laid out there, uh, just, just at, by way of a graphic. Then on page 66, he completes this lecture with these words. For the moment, we may say that the foundations of redemption are being laid. Man the rebel, dead in his sins and wickedness, is the object of God's promise and grace. God's grace is shown in the saving of Noah and the continuation of a godly line. Already there is evidence of the relationship which God has now he wrote, Goldsworthy wrote, wants to have. I frankly just scratched that out. 
I said already there is evidence of the relationship which God has with a new race of men. And there are signs that the kingdom of God is breaking into the fallen world in a demonstration of the redemptive mercy. So, the unfolding of the history from Adam to Abraham, and this is what he's saying, summarizing, the unfolding of the history from Adam to Abraham shows, it's already showing all of the elements that it is a an unfolding history of redemption. There is an ungodly seed. There is a godly seed by God's electing choice. And that's one of the very first things you learn, is it not? As you read this, as you, if you look at this as a history, one of the first things you learn is that it's God who chooses <laughs> what line will be the godly line. God chose Abram. Abram, when he was down there, a pagan among pagans. God chose him. <laughs> God chose Noah. Why? He was a righteous man. How could he be made? How could he have been righteous? He was made righteous. And so, one of the first things you pick up on in this unfolding history, this theology, this biblical theology. As you see the narrative unfold, is that it's God who directs the line, the lines, and what He is doing in His directing of these things is unfolding the history of redemption. And when is that? When is that concluded? When when do we come to the end of that? At the cross, in the person of Jesus Christ and His resurrection then the redemption is complete. And he says, he declares from his cross, it is finished. The whole history of redemption is finished. Now the work of redemption is not finished. That is the work that redemption will do. He's still gathering his elect. There is still yet work to be done in the kingdom of God. But the history of redemption is done in the person of Jesus Christ. So this moves us from Adam all the way down to Abraham in our view of biblical theology as being the progression of the kingdom of God kingdom of God. Okay? Now, apart from my comments on the Westminster, which I reserve to myself, <laughs> has there any other comments or questions we'd like to entertain from this lecture? This is a uh, this is a very uh, I'm trying to see who the publisher. This is printed by Bell and Bain Limited in Glasgow. 
Uh, this particular reprint was done in 1997. Uh, it, has, it does have an ISBE number, I think somewhere. Yes, ISBE number here. Uh, this is a very, very thorough, very thorough treatment uh, of, the, uh, of the Westminster Confession of Faith. If you don't have one and you like to have one, there's plenty of them out there. But uh, this is a particularly good one, I think. Uh, comment on it by Richard Baxter and, of course, by B.B. Warfield. B.B. Uh, Warfield said the Westminster Standards are the richest and most precise and best guarded statement ever penned of all that enters into evangelical religion and all that must be safeguarded if evangelical religion is to persist in the world. So that's just a comment uh, of Warf about about the Westminster by Warfield. So anyway, you may be interested in one of those or not. Okay. So we're moving. We're moving pretty rapidly. Tying this history of redemption together. Trying to show to you that the Old Testament is not and cannot be dismissed as having no relevance, as being no part of the New Testament church we hear so much about. It's a continuation of the history of redemption. All right, so be it. Let us pray together.